Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to November's Movies Podcast. Coming up, we look at Disney's takeover of Lucasfilm and also enter the world of Bond, James Bond, in Skyfall. And joining me on the Movies Podcast this month is Chris, Simon, Matt and Steve. Good evening, guys. Hello, everybody. Hello, Phil. Good evening. Good evening. Evening, everybody. And on this podcast, uh, we've had the release of the new Bond film, Skyfall, which we're going to talk about very soon. Uh, We've all seen it. We're going to try and avoid spoilers, aren't we, people? No. Yes, we will try. (laughs) We're going to try. I can't guarantee Chris will. (laughs) (laughs) So that's coming up. But first of all, the big news of the week, and uh, we were close to breaking this story on Friday night, and that was that Disney has bought Lucasfilm uh, for $4.05 billion. They get everything with that. So uh, Skywalker Ranch, Skywalker Sound, ILM, all the film franchises, including Indiana Jones. Uh, So big news there. And Lucas today has said that he's going to donate almost his, all of that money. His to, beard. He will donate his beard as well. He's going to donate almost all of that money to education programs. So he's almost given everything away. Has the guy lost sure his marbles? A cheeky few hundred million in the bank, just in case, you know. It's a, I think it's a guilt trip for the um, the abortions that he that he made with the prequels. <laughs> That's a bit rough. Controversy right from the word go. I mean, he's given, let's be fair, I mean, he's given almost four billion away education. I'm sure his personal fortune will be enough for him and his family and his generations to come to live quite comfortably. Uh, but that's quite, a, that, that's quite a turn of phrase from a guy who's, you know, been basically stripping our pockets for the last 10 years with all different versions of Star Wars and we've complained about, oh, we're paying Lucasfilm this much money, blah, 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 again, 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 we're not getting what we want. But then for him to turn around and do that, bit of a bolt out of the blue, is it not? Is it conscious, do you think? Do you think Disney have massively overvalued what it's actually worth, though? In, in no, all not honesty, in the slightest. Not I, in the I, think, I think they've no. underpaid. I think they've got a bit of a bargain there, to be honest. If you think about the franchises that they've got, um, just how much they could get out of the franchises by re-releasing. I mean, if they were to re-release the 77 cut of Star oh, Wars yeah. on Blu-ray, that would sell by the bucket load. They'll make three billion just from three Star Wars movies alone, so no, they haven't un- overpaid at all. Uh, in fact, if anything, I think since they're also getting Indiana Jones and, and ILM, I don't think they've underpaid at all. I think they've got a bargain, to be honest. I think I think the deal really went ahead because... Lucas trusts Disney to to take over and and um, you know manage the legacy of Star Wars more than he would any other studio, and, and I think he's probably right. Looking at what they've done with Pixar and Marvel, um, they've done a brilliant job with those two studios. Uh, you know, <laughs> the biggest film of the year has been The Avengers, by a country mile, and um, you know Pixar continue to operate relatively independently of, of, of Disney in terms of what they produce, and in fact, if anything, Pixar run Disney Animation now because John Lasseter's in charge. So, so I think uh, having Kathleen Kennedy in charge, who you know, who's, who's worked with and known Lucas since, since well, at least since Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, is good. And uh, you know, if, if they can bring in 
good writers and good directors, uh, like they did with, say, Joss Whedon on on, um, on the Avengers, then, yeah, I think we could be up for some exciting stuff. Fact, let's, be Lucas about well, let's be honest about it. Lucas has been bank- creatively bankrupt since 1982. He hasn't done anything good since Raiders. Uh, I mean, he's been an absolute joke. The, the prequels were uh, appalling in every sense of the word. He got no idea how to write. He can't direct anymore. Uh, he was always just penny pinching, wondering about the worrying about the cost because he was financing this stuff himself. Now that it's going to be produced under the you know, under the umbrella of a gigantic studio, I think they'll be you know they won't be so concerned about you know penny pinching and not shooting too many setups because you've got to you know you're using so much green screen that if you move the camera too much you've got to animate more stuff, <laughs> which yeah. is basically what he was doing on the prequels. I mean he, everything was a two shot master shot, and then and that was it because if you did anything else you had to animate more stuff. And it was just purely a cost factor. Well, let's not forget, though, that Disney did release John Carter. Which, which, bombed which is a great movie. movie. <laughs> it is. It's a great film, yeah. I mean, the fact it didn't do very well is Disney's them. fault. Uh, I think the fact they had the courage to make that at all shows you what they could do with a, with a, with a Star Wars movie. And let's face it, they're um, not going to mismarket Star Wars, are they? Like they did, they treated John Carter quite atrociously in their build-up to its release. But with Star Wars, they're not going to drop the ball this time, are they? They're just there's a the title, Star Wars, and whatever subtitle you want for that one, bingo. Well, the thing is, though, the, the, the well, the I don't well know. Will come. I know that currently there are distribution deals with Fox for Star Wars films until 2020, which is to cover the reissues of the 3D versions yeah. up until 2017. Um, so Disney actually can't. <laughs> release a Star Wars film as Disney. It'll have to be distributed through Fox, I think, until 2020. And the same goes with with, with um, Indiana Jones. That's through Paramount. So it'll be interesting all very, to see all very complicated. how much that. Yeah. Well, least, little... We're going we're gonna to get three major new movies in the Star Wars canon. Um, and they're all going to be natively 3D, aren't they? I do believe, which, which should be cool. No post-conversions there. And, you know, for a lot of us who grew up with the original trilogy, we always thought there was going to be nine movies out of this. It was heavily touted that way at the time. Lucas bigged it up as being an original nine-movie treatment. And then it sort of fell by the wayside. No, I really didn't mean to do nine movies. I've condensed it all down and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's such an infinite universe. Uh, There's so much more they can explore with it. There's no reason why this can't run and run and run. It's it's huge. To be honest, Chris, he couldn't be asked to make nine movies. That's basically what he said. He didn't want to do any more films, which is fair enough. But now he's let it go. Yeah. Uh, he's happy for other people to make those additional films. And if you look at things like The Clone Wars, which whilst it has some input from Lucas, is predominantly you know um, written and, and directed by other people. Uh-huh. Dave Filoni and, and actually Lucas's daughter writes some of it, although she's not too bad to um, Yeah, so, I mean, you've got other people doing it. And actually, The Clone Wars is, is, is not a bad show. It's, uh, it's fun and, and it's quite dark in places and, and it expands the universe in interesting ways. And... You know, if they can carry that across to the feature films, then I think we might, they might actually be. I mean, let's be honest, the the, the prequels weren't fun. Were they? <laughs> they were just miserable, dour-faced, boring, pompous, self-indulgent. Well, the first one was a complete not a mess, apart from Darth Maul. There was there was nothing else to it of any enjoyment factor whatsoever. Politics and you know trade embargoes. What the, well, what when you, the when hell? When the opening crawls, first line is the taxation of outlying star systems. Yeah, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> it's it's god awful stuff. Yeah, uh, Attack of the Clones, which I loved at the time when it came out. I don't. I, I can't imagine why I did, but maybe because of the big battle at the end, I presume. But basically, I cannot watch that film again it's because terrible. of you know Anakin is just so uh, well. Anakin's basically a psychopath. Bloody awful. 
<laughs> and why yeah. anyone would fall in love with him in a space of about 10 minutes is, is beyond me. It's a terrible film, actually. I think it's actually worse it's, than Menace. It's a bloody awful Menace movie, has, yeah. At least Menace has got physical sets and feels a bit like a Star Wars film. I mean, those, those, that film in particular is not going to age well because it was shot at 1080p on first-generation digital cameras. And I think that's one of the reasons why the disc doesn't look very good is because they're doing the best they can with some very, very ropey, you know, um, source material. And then Sith's okay, but again, Sith, you know, that's the only... I think that's the film he wanted to make. The other two were just sort of treading water until he got to the third part. Well, Sith, it felt rushed. And you kind of felt, well, he could have made Sith into the three films. What was the point of the, the first two? He could have just made Sith and made it longer, split it into three movies, because it was infinitely better. And it was the one that we were all wanting anyway, which was to see how it was going to lead into A New Hope 20 years later. I mean, to be honest, if you, you, can, you can not watch Menace at all and still watch the other two films, and, and Menace just doesn't matter, and you, know, you don't need it at all. It's like, really, no one in that film, apart from Obi-Wan, is it carried across and and, Atlas and um, Amidala. I mean, but most of the characters in it aren't in the other two films. So it's, it's kind of like, what's the point? And you have three films there where the enemy were droids, emotionless, buffoonish, keystone cop droids. There was no sense of fear from these guys whatsoever. No Darth Vader. The clone troopers come in and they're so bloody good at what they do. It makes a travesty of what the stormtroopers, you know, the stormtroopers that they became, you know, who are completely inept at everything they do. They can't even walk through doors properly, can they? They're like banging their heads. But, uh, and they can't hit a damn thing. But the clones were just, you know, super troopers, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely awesome SAS trained guys. But, you know, you can you put them and the Jedi against a bunch of spindly droids. Ugh. Well, where, where's the conflict, really? It just, it just isn't there. And Sif, it always felt to me like uh, it was two movies horribly bolted together because you had the first half, it was all, you know, euphoria against the, um, the droids and the Trade Federation and all this. And um, then you twisted to the dark side, <laughs> literally. And it, it, it just didn't flow together too well for me. As Phil said there, you could have made that a much longer movie or made that movie into that story into three separate chunks of, of the, you know, the, um, the evolution of Anakin. But it just felt a little bit too, yeah. as you say, rushed. I mean, too bolted bol- bol- together. As much as I enjoy the Clone Wars TV show, the fact that the Clone Wars predominantly happens off screen in the films is somewhat annoying. They waited 30 years for it. Yeah. I think we were all quite disappointed with that because one thing Lucas has said quite early on in making those those three prequels was that you know he wanted to see sort of great battles with lots of um, sort of the um, oh gosh what are they the lightsabers you want to see lots of the lightsabers sort of flashing you know thousands of Jedi knights and that never really appeared did it we kind of lost all of that quite early on the ending of uh, Clones it was a great Jedi you know last stand wasn't it they formed a circle and that was pretty intriguing first time round. And there were lots of skirmishes in Sith. But yeah, this was meant to be a huge, long conflict. You know, it's, it's a huge mythology built around it, which is just alluded to in, in the rest of the movies. So I suppose in, in a way, yeah, that was deflated. But you have the Clone Wars TV show, which certainly expands on that, you know, massively. I guess the problem, the problem with the prequels was that the fact that the characters, none of the characters appealed, which the first film you had... You had your bad guy in Han Solo, you know he was he was uh, he, he couldn't really trust him, but your rough he, diamond, he on, he, yeah, he was on the good side, but and then you had uh, you had Luke who was, you know the the young lad on the journey, 
and then you had the supporting characters around, which which were good fleshed out characters as well. I mean, as fleshed out as you can get for a Star Wars movie. And I guess that that's where the fun was. That's you know, it was the chemistry between the three main main characters and Chewie. Um, you had the droids who were actually telling the story. And and it just works so much better as a as an all round story arc basically. Whereas what is the story arc of the prequels? Is it Anakin? Is it the Trade Federation? Is it you know? It's it's just so convoluted. I mean, it's yeah, meant it's to be true. the rise of the Empire, isn't it? But you, you, that's just tacked on. It, it lies in the shadows, which is perhaps a wise move, but it depends how you execute it. And uh, it, you knew Palpatine what was going to happen with him. So a lot of it was based on stuff you already knew. So a lot of suspense wasn't really there. And which yeah. we've already discussed before, haven't we, about how sequels are inherently flawed because you know how they end. Which is a big problem with the uh, sorry, not sequels, with the prequel is that you know how it's going to end. But mm. you know, if Palpatine, his his plots were so convoluted, I mean, Phil's right. You're thinking, well, at any point that could have gone horribly wrong if someone had just done something slightly different. They were just ridiculously complicated. And half the time, you're not. You, I mean, in, in Menace particularly, you know, who is the protagonist? Who is the? You know, is it Obi Wan? It's not Anakin. He's too young. Obi Wan's not on screen very much. It's basically Qui Gon, who then George gets killed. And isn't it? He gets Kill killed, him. and isn't it in the next two films? So yeah. you know, what was the point of that? To, to be to be fair, in its defence, let, let's hark back to what Lucas's overriding passion for these movies is, and with Indiana Jones as well. It's the old 1930s cliffhanger serials, which told in you know half an hour or 15 minute episodes, even on the radio or whatever. Um, it was the same story, very repetitive. Hero would end up in a, some kind of predicament, has to extricate himself from it at the start of the next episode. And bad guys, their fiendish plots were very often overly elaborate, stupidly complicated, and would never work because the heroes always thwarted them. And he, with the original trilogy and with this trilogy, he's tried so hard to bring that in, as well as turn this overarching story of impending darkness and the loss of innocence and all that. So he's got the grand scheme there, which is commendable, but he's trying rather awkwardly to fit in you know, this old cliffhanger style and the two don't gel so well in his hands. So it is fundamentally flawed because of, of, of his own, you know, amb- over-ambitions. It's, it's, it's own, his own creative shortcomings, to be perfectly honest. The, the Clone Wars TV series, the fourth season has just been released. Has anyone seen it yet? I haven't seen the fourth uh, my one. My copy hasn't arrived yet. So yeah. Sure. Chris, I know you've normally... Not in this particular case, I haven't. No, okay. No, I've only seen um, the first two seasons. I know Darth Moyle comes back into it. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Well, because the, the third season was a bit dry. It wasn't particularly good. The first two seasons were really, really good. And um, there was a, a lot of character and a, and a lot of people put into the stories that you thought, oh, yeah, I can follow these through. The third season sort of died off a bit, although they started they started to, to feed into where Maul come from, Darth Maul. It's not actually Darth Maul, but it's obviously his race of people. Um, so I was just interested if anyone, you know, where they're going with that. So I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to that and sort of moving it back to Disney. If they sort of can bring that creative input to the next films, which are presumably taking place after Jedi, I think we can, we will, they bring the right writers, they bring the right um, directors in with no input from Lucas, because we're talking about his shortcomings now, with no input from him, I think we could potentially see and return to form, if you were, to something from 30 years ago, which is what we should have seen 10 years ago. Yeah, I, so I, I agree it, with it's that. It's exciting. Yeah, I agree with that, Simon. And 
you got to think that, that there is a, a new generation of directors coming through who are proving themselves. I think somebody mentioned Josh Whedon, who um, I don't think will uh, end up directing one of these, but that type of uh, generation of director who's grown up with the Star Wars, who loves Star Wars, the person I'm thinking of is Ed, Edgar Wright. I think Edgar Wright would make a fantastic Star Wars film. Uh, the guy's an absolute Star Wars geek and, and gets gets the whole thing. Um, you just have to uh, put your minds back to space and the whole uh, the whole thing with Simon Pegg and the yeah. six-year-old in, in, yeah. <laughs> in, in the comic book uh, store when he's talking about menace and it's a six-year-old that he's talking to and he's getting so <laughs> passionate about it. But that, I think if we can get that generation in, and make it a bit darker, because the one movie that I love of the whole Star Wars franchise is the darkest movie of all, and that was Empire. Of course. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. and that worked because, you know, you you felt that they were quite capable of killing off one of the lead characters or, you know, something bad was going to happen. And I think that's the way they should really take the, the next three movies. Uh, you know, we've had the euphoria of Return of the Jedi, where they've overcome the Empire, but there's so much more. Because the Empire won't finish just there, will it? I mean, we've seen the books and everything else that, that have, have carried on from that point. I think they need to take a, a, a clean, fresh slate with it. Yeah, it could be like the uh, Second World War, where you've got like that ageing Japanese sniper 40 years after the World War II's end, who <laughs> still thinks he's fighting the war. You could have one rogue stormtrooper just sit, sitting off in some the jungle planet of Astoria or whatever. You know, yeah. God, well, let's do away with the, the, the topographical planets as well. Yeah. The desert planet of Tatooine, the forest moon of Endor. Oh, God, no. Yeah, totally. And it doesn't have to be like that. You just have to look at what's happened in the real world recently with regime change and all the rest of it. And it never goes smoothly. Uh, mm. Things never happen smoothly. And and, and I think the second prequel film, the, the, the when they were in the bar looking for the bounty hunter, I, I really like that whole underworld world that was there and it wasn't explored enough I don't think you know when you see the just the normal people inhabiting the universe there's so yeah. much that could be done with it there was plans to do a live action tv show called Star Wars Underworld Phil set in that kind of underworld uh environment between episode three and episode four obviously I, mean, I wondered why it had gone very quiet which obviously the reason is now is because of this whole deal um, and it's interesting to think, well, uh, Clone Wars is made by Warner Brothers, so that's another complication they're going to have to deal with. But I actually read a rumour about um, about episodes 7, 8 and 9 about six months ago, which I sort of poo-pooed because I thought, well, that's not going to happen. But obviously, it was them preparing that probably about six months ago because they've apparently already start, fleshed out the three-story arc. Well, I also thought they, were, they, they had done some of the TV show because I was going to bring that in as well at that point. Um and I know they'd written something like 50 episodes, but I thought they'd actually begun to film some of these. No, no. Damn, because that would have been the, the ideal way of exploring, well, as we've just said, you know, far more um, subcultures and different races and keep things out of the big sphere of, you know, the, the, the hierarchy of the Empire. You just keep it Starsky and Hutch level, you know, <laughs> and it would have been great. No major characters in it, just create whole new ones. Well, that's and what I was going to perhaps gonna, even do it grittier. That's what I was going to say next. I mean, do we need the major characters there? I mean, do we do we need R two C three PO the Wookies? Do we need any of that? Of course not. No. No. no, 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 no. 
I was going to say, I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion, though, that Disney are going to probably want to insist that at least some of those characters remain in it, just from a marketing and sales point of view. Because, yes, you're right, I think those of a certain generation are going to be quite happy just to, to live in that expanded universe, if you like. But I think that they're going to want to reintroduce some of those characters to a new generation as well. I don't think they're going to want to start almost with... Uh, sort of basically go back to scratch with the uh, with the format I think that and with the characters I think they're going to want to build on what they bought like Terminator Salvation when the, why that was a bloody awful movie I thought but it had to revolve around John Connor why you know there's, there's been a future war taking place I, I'm, I'm this is a slight deviation I know but the point remains the same about keeping this you know the characters that everyone knows why keep those people in that didn't save Terminator Salvation because that was a boring mess of a film when he could have told any pocket of you know civilization holding out against the machines at any part of the world it would have been just as well, probably even better and far more exciting and could have gone off in a whole new direction. So Star Wars, yeah, as you say, from a marketing point of view, it's pretty obvious you're going to see some familiar faces, uh, and it might be nice to see them as well. You know, as the 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 years have gone on in this particular universe, a long, long way away, but there's a hell of a lot more to uh, to do. And more people to bring in, and that that itself creates new directions to move in. Yeah, because what Lucas has done with the, with the the uh, previous three films, the first, the prequels, is he's shrunk the universe down, hasn't it? He? He's made it so much smaller than what it should be. Yeah. By, you know, you know what I mean? It's wrong. Star Wars was always grand and huge and big, and one of the big arguments between Star Wars and Star Trek was that Star Trek was so small. The, the infinite universe of Star Wars was vast, and by these three prequel films, have shrunk it down to, you know, a handful of characters. Where it's everyone's going to everybody else. Get, well, yeah. we need to we need to expand the world, expand the universe. Think Without outside them. the box. Give that box <laughs> a big bang, and there you go. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk to possible directors then. Let's speculate. Let's let's come up with our dream team. Who would you pick? Not Christopher Nolan. No. <laughs> And that's been, on, that's been on the forums quite a bit. Don't use him. Uh, I think, I think Joss, Joss Whedon would Whedon, be yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah, But he's already committed to doing the Avengers too. So there's J.J. No J. Abrams. But then again, he's oh, Star Trek. No, he lends flares all over the bloody... Yeah, he's doing Star Trek anyway. <laughs> well, uh, really worryingly, uh, the rumours are that it's being written by Damon Lindelof, or whatever his name oh, is. Oh, no way. talentless no. hack who ever drew breath. And how that yeah. useless <laughs> ever gets any work is beyond me. Don't but, let him anywhere near it. Or anything else for that matter. Why not someone like Brad Bird? Yeah. Well, I mean, if John Carter was such a, a, a good movie, who was it that directed that then? Andrew Stanton. Uh, who's another from the Pixar stable, <laughs> isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. think they'll trust him again, though, will they? Because part of the the, the blame, the, the war of blame for that film is disastrous, uh, showing some of them are blaming him because he locked out the people who were going to do, cut the trailers together and he demanded that he was oversaw it all but only at the last minute so i don't think they're going to give him a it's chance for anything big he's yeah he's 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 burnt his, his boats now hasn't he that's it i don't know <laughs> I, I, I really I, I quite like my suggestion edgar right i think you'd make a fantastic star wars movie uh, can you handle a big budget film like that i think he deserves a shot at something like that yeah, yeah i think so i think so i think he could handle it and, and you, you've got to look at how he how he's Spielberg, did you say? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that was that was the other thing. The, the other rumor is that that Spielberg might be involved because he was supposed to do Return of the Jedi, and that they'd, yeah, yeah. they'd fallen out with the Directors Guild of uh, yeah. of America at the time, so he couldn't do it. 
and and you know there's been a lot of talk that he was desperate to do a Star Wars film, but you know has too much water passed under the bridge now for that. Yeah, possibly. I but think but so. the good thing he's is, too old. He's, he's, he's just said he's not going to do new action movies as well. He just wants to do more personal good? projects. I've gone by the prequels. He'd, he'd fit right. <laughs> <laughs> you need younger talent, don't, don't we all? Yeah, I, don't I, we all? I, I think so, and I, and I think it has to be one of the new Brat Parker directors out there. I mean, there's lots of talent out there, and there's lots of them that have grown up with the Star Wars universe. Um, and and you know there should be someone out there that that they can identify who is going to make the Star Wars movie that everybody wants to see. Mm. But will that ever happen? Who knows. I mean, the only danger, of course, of choosing a Fanta director is you end up with something like um, Aliens versus Predators Requiem. <laughs> so I was going to say that ultimately, Phil's already meant, said, you know, that I think we'll all agree that my favourite Star Wars film is The Empire Strikes Back, and that was directed by Evan Kirsten and produced by Gary Kurtz and written by Lawrence Kasdan. So give, give it to other people, and it, it could turn out to be really good, whoever yeah. they use. As long as it's somebody, yeah, who's not going to become a total fanboy and can at least distance themselves from the material enough to make it good. I, yeah, I, I think it was said. Story, yeah. I think it was said on the forums that, in terms of the Star Wars movies after the prequels and the fallout from that, it, it, the franchise is at its lowest level. So the only way it can go is up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that is a good I mean, point. I, honestly, it couldn't be worse, could it? I mean, you couldn't physically make a worse film than, them, than any of the prequels. <laughs> Um, so before we move the conversation on, I mean, it wasn't just Star Wars uh, that was part of the deal. I'm really looking forward to Howard the Duck 2. I think that'll be a... <laughs> uh, and obviously the sequels to Willow. I think that'd be fantastic. But obviously the, the other big franchise in there is the Indiana Jones movies. We had the terrible, terrible Crystal Skull movie, mm-hmm. which I think's put a lot of people off maybe well, having Once again, one. could that get any worse? And... Um, it possibly could do. You know, long in the tooth, Harrison Ford, who at least looked the part, but it just didn't gel, did it? No bad guys, no real villainy. Uh, and Sheila LaBeouf, oh God. I wish I could pronounce his name the way I really want to talk about him, but I can't. <laughs> yeah, absolute dire waste of acting space. Uh, and would he be tied into it as well? Because now you've moved the, uh, the mythology on again and he's got a son. And he's married, isn't he, at the end of the, the last one, if I remember rightly? Yeah. He's married to Marion at the end of it. So, I mean, is is that is that possible for a reboot? You know, is you know, it's in Disney's hands now, and, and let's let's face it, they are quite capable hands. It's a if, franchise. Yeah. It's going to make money. So well, there was yeah. a, a young a TV series, wasn't there? Yeah, young yeah, Indiana, Indiana Jones Chronicles. Yeah, I mean that done pretty well. So potentially they could go, and oh, we don't need to reboot it, but they could go back to that kind of age. Yeah. I think there's certainly plenty of gaps in the story that you can, as you're right, you can go back to, and the young Indiana is probably the easiest one to recreate. Um, I, I think, yeah, certainly. But are you then going to be going over a lot of what they did in that that TV series? Do you think that would yeah. be a bad thing? I think I think they'll 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 almost certainly reboot it with a younger actor as Indiana Jones. I I think I think that's the only way they can do it. Um, yeah, because Harrison Ford's like seventy now. Isn't yeah, it? I, I mean, if you, if you look at, at what we're going to go on and talk talk about next which is the bond just franchise say, yeah. you know how many <laughs> times bond, didn't it? how many times has that been rebooted and how many times has you know another actor come in and i think all of them have, have basically made it their own part for two three four films one film uh for uh, <laughs> mr lazenby but you know at least they've had a run of at least two films and made the part their own so perhaps they could do that by indiana jones but then again you have the iconic hat and the whip and the jacket so would someone else f- stepping into that role 
would you still be thinking about Harrison Ford? I don't know. That's probably what they I, said. I think they, they could try it. I, I think they wouldn't be afraid to do that. Uh, they're, they're big boots to fill, of course, but you know, it's, it's got to move on. Harrison Ford certainly can't keep on doing it. You know, next thing would be he'd be an Expendables, won't he? Expendables three, <laughs> Indiana Jones. <laughs> I, I suspect Phil, that's exactly what they said in '68 when they recast Connery. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. Like, yeah. can, can, can anyone replace James, um, Sean Connery? As it turns out, no. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm sure they said that. And, and if ultimately, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, we're still still going strong, as we're about to talk about, uh, with a completely different actor. He wasn't even born. <laughs> when the franchise started. So I guess, rounding up on, on the whole Disney Lucasfilm thing, um, I, I guess we're all quite happy with, with with that news and it opens up possibilities that we're all fairly excited about. Absolutely. Sadly, know, really. we're, all, we're all very cynical, though, because uh, we've been bitten by the prequels, so the, our expectation and anticipation is tempered with the fact that we're expecting them to fail as well. And especially with the forums, we're all forum, you know, lovers and haters at the same time these films can kind of months and months years in fact of being ripped to shreds before we even get to see them so the point is just to keep your fingers crossed and may the force be with it (laughs) nice (laughs) Uh, you had to get that in there didn't you all right so let's put that one to bed for the time being i'm sure we're going to come back to it as we get more uh news from the camp about the new films and so on because it's quite a quick turnaround 2015 the the same we're going to have episode seven so we'll look forward to that and i'm sure we'll talk about it more so let's move on uh, when we come back in a second we're going to talk about skyfall for up to the minute av discussion and hardware reviews visit avforums.com right so moving on and uh, the big movie at the moment is obviously the new bond uh, we're celebrating 50 years of Bond this year. We've all got our box sets, which I'm sure we'll come back to during this conversation. But the big film is Skyfall. We've all managed to go out and see it. I have to say, it's the first time I've actually had the full IMAX experience um, seeing this movie, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Um, so I guess we've got to go to Chris first, uh, <laughs> being Mr. Bond and having gone out and actually bought a suit. The wrong size, by the way. He's actually a 34, not a sure, 32. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, yeah. Phil. I think he's more a 36 with a 28 leg. Is that not about right? <laughs> oh, God. All right, I, so... am ja- I am a jabber the hut, yeah. <laughs> All right, so, uh, so let's talk Skyfall, Chris. I don't think I want to now after that introduction. Um, <laughs> I saw it IMAX as well, and I thoroughly, I thoroughly love the movie. Uh, <laughs> I know there's, there's some people who, who don't like it. It's been tagged as the best Bond film ever. No way on earth is it? it? It's it's up there. As far as I'm concerned, it's up there with the best of the bonds, um, because for my liking, and God, we've got to try not to be spoilerific on this one. It tells a more emotional story. It is definitely different from the rest of the uh, the, the the Bond brood. If you can liken it to anything else, for me personally, HMSS, which is I've quite publicised that must be my favourite, and it probably still is. Um, because it tells an emotional story. You, you, you get more depth to the character, uh, especially of Bond, especially of M as well, which I, I didn't really want to see more of Judy Dench and her cankles, but she's integral to this story. Very, very important. And the relationship that she has with Bond and the bad guy as well, um, it, it's, it's great. I, I, I was thoroughly um, taken by, by all of that, but it's not the greatest of plots. 
someone wants revenge against MI6. Woo, big deal. Um, I found it likened to uh, Frankenstein and the relationship that Frankenstein has with the monster he creates. It's basically that story all over again. Um, how, how do you pronounce his name? Javier? Xavier? Javier Bardem. Mr. Bardem uh, plays someone who has an association with MI6 and quite clearly has a grievance with them and then goes all out to get his revenge. There you go. That, that's, that's about as far as we can go plot-wise, I think. But obviously Bond's going to get involved in this and, and stop him in his tracks if he can. But Bardem plays the Frankenstein monster. He's been created. He now wants to meet his creator and find out why why this happened, why that happened, and, you know, get his revenge if necessary. And I like that, especially as the, as the film sort of has a, a gothic horror element to it as well, which I'm dying to talk a lot more about, but obviously can't. But, uh, you know, it, it tonally it has these different concepts which you've not seen in a Bond film before. Action-wise, I thought there was, there was enough for me. Um, obviously, you can always do with a bit more. And I know some people I saw it with thought it was a bit, a bit boring, one person I saw it with was, was openly yawning his head off. At the same time, as the entire audience around us seemed to be clapping and cheering at one particular um, beautiful reference to the original movies. And uh, we, got, we got told off. <laughs> and Usher had to, everyone stop clapping, please. What? It's Bond on the big screen. Come on. Patriotic. Get in there. And, uh, but yeah, basically, I thought it was great. I would give it a very strong... Seven, eight out of ten. We see, I'd give it a pretty weak seven. And the reason I would give it that is, to me, it felt like two different films. It felt like it felt like a football game with, with two different halves, basically. The first hour and a half, absolutely loved it. Thought it was great, thought the cinematography was fantastic, thought stunt work was unbelievably good. You know with Bond, it's all going to be real uh, and done there and then, which it was. It was a little bit rushed at the start, but then I think the first 20 minutes, before we even get to the credits was just a bit too long. Uh, but still, I loved it. I thought it was great. There's a scene that which takes place in an office building. I won't go into too much detail. Uh, it's all sh- shot in the shadows. The fight is actually in silhouette with flashes of lights now and again. Uh, you've got the backdrop of Singapore. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, and it just works. Fantastic. It's what a Bond film should be. I then, say, probably, I love that as well. Then, the, ne- the neon was just tremendous. Ne- yeah. Neon on shadow and the fight in silhouette. Just, just tremendous stuff. Yeah, it was absolutely fantastic, and the cinematography was beautiful. And then we get to an episode of Spooks, which is in an underground station. It, it, you know, the exposition and stuff, it was just, oh, it was laboured. It really was laboured. And then it turns into a completely different movie for the second half, and I thought it was pretty weak, the second I half. I think you must have seen it on a much better screen than I did. I went, I went to the local flea pit on Friday to watch it. And yes, it's digital and all that sort of stuff. But actually, the stuff in Singapore, to me, felt really too dark. And it kind of spoiled that, that whole section for me. Um, and then when we moved, as you say, to, to the underground sections, I think there was a few ropey bits of CGI in there that you just don't expect to see in a Bond film. The, the action sequences at the beginning, the opening section, is just awesome and just amazing, some of those stunts. And you know that some of them are tightened up in CGI and that sort of stuff, but it still looks fantastic. But I wasn't overly impressed, as you say, when we got to some of the, the later sections of the film. Some of it felt real, some of it just didn't. It just didn't work for me. For, for, for me, and of course we can't, we can't go into spoilers, which is really killing me, and I know it's killing everybody else because we really want to get to the crux of the matter. 
Um, there's a section where the film could have gone one or two ways. And for me, I think it went the wrong way. I think they played it the wrong way and it went against type. Now, they maybe did that deliberately because in the first two movies, obviously with Daniel Craig, um, his motivation is Vesper. And maybe they wanted to change change that aspect on, in this one and not go with the same sort of revenge type of thing. But I think it could have played far better. Um, and and the, the main scene is 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 uh, an MP. The MPs questioning MI6, and the scene that happens after that. People who've seen the movie will know what I'm talking about, and it's not spoiling it for anybody else. Um, it could have gone two different ways, and I think they went the wrong way with it. You mean he could have turned the car the other way? Uh, no. Uh, I, Oh, this is killing me because I really want I to get. Well, I really want to get into the crux of the matter. But um, my uh, opinions are that we, we we could give a few more pointers out because otherwise this is just going to go nowhere. <laughs> it's just going to circle in circles. Yeah, it's well, going to circle in circles. Well, 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 the whole point of the the whole point of the second the second half of the movie is to flush out the bad guy. Um, yeah, and and the, obviously they head to to Scotland, and then that ties in with the title of the film. I won't give it away, but it ties in with the title of the film. But I just felt it went the wrong way, and I felt it was cliched. I thought the the final act was very much a Hollywood ending. I didn't think the action was particularly well staged at all. And I thought it was a nice little reversal of what you normally see with a Bond film, uh, where Bond at the end will take the fight to the bad guys. He will infiltrate the bad guy's stronghold. All certainly all the classic Bonds did this. This sort of takes it the opposite way, as you say, and then again, without going into too many details. Um, so it, it kind of reverses the standards. And I liked it for that. This is where the, the gothic horror bit comes in that I was alluding to before. Because then the mood changed quite dramatically. Now, you know, a lot of people don't like it. I, I did. I didn't expect it to be quite as tonally dramatic as that. And, and as moody and as um, introspective as well whether you like to find out more about Bond's background. And you don't find a great deal out, but, you know, there's a couple of crucial elements there. Um, but it's, it's nice that they're there, I think. And I, I loved it. I was, uh, yeah, I, I was quite great. There are definitely cliches there, though, you know, I can't, can't yeah, deny but, that. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's a Bond film, and, and I, I appreciate that point that it is a Bond film, and no Bond film, um, there is no perfect Bond film, because they have, to, they have to be formulaic in some sort of way, because of who the character is and what he does. Getting back to what I was saying about the opening of the movie and the cinematography was absolutely beautiful. The action was brilliant and so on. And then it wasn't just the storyline that changed. It was actually the way the mood of the film and the way it was shot as well. I mean, the, the second half of the film was utterly poor. And and one bit that stood out for me, and there was actually quite a few bits that stood out, and that should never happen when you're watching a film. I didn't go to critique the film at all. I went to enjoy it. And there was just a few things that really sort of stood out. One was the photography the second half. Uh, and it's a bit at the end of the film where, where he's standing on a building looking at London and we all know how picturesque London can be and she comes up and says, wow, what a view. Uh, no, it wasn't okay. a view. It wasn't a view because the sky was blown out so it was just white and the whole and they view were was... showing grey rooftops, weren't they? Grey rooftops uh, and it was all washed out to hell and you think, who's the cinematographer here? Did they, did they, did they shoot that first and fire the guy? Because it's got See, no resemblance to the start of the film. Well, you're, deep, you, you, you're dead right there. Yeah, um, you, you, you're dead right about that. But again, coming from the other the other angle, MI6, Whitehall, London, it's drab, it's grey. It, how it's always been depicted in the 60s and the 70s gritty movies. 
And I thought visually the end of the movie um, with the bits in Scotland and the bits back in London again reminded me of things like um, Get Carter, The Hypocrist File, you know, a couple of Michael Caine films there, and especially Get Carter with the shotgun elements. And, you know, well, again, not going into too much, but it, it just struck me as like, ah, they're going for the old, you know, the 70s grit. And, you know, London didn't look picturesque at all. Uh, then again, you know, Bond always goes to the most exotic locations. This was different in, in respect that a lot of it stayed in rainy, sodden, overcast, um, horrible, grungy, the UK. And, you know, that shot you, you're saying about there at the end, well, yeah, but that's, what, that's why it's all for you. That's the world that he's come from and ironically no, no, that's the no, world he's defending no it was just bad cinematography chris it was completely <laughs> and utterly blown out completely and utterly blown out and there was no need for it there was no there was no stylistic need for that because what it did was it it made the whole backdrop completely and utterly washed out um so you know you should have been able to see in the reversal shot you should have been able to see the the gherkin building which was there but it was completely and utterly obscured by the fact that the you know the sky was white <laughs> It com- they're just completely blown it out, which tends to point to me that maybe that was a scene that they've had to reshoot in a hurry, or it was tacked on quickly, because it didn't feel like there was any care taken with it. Um, maybe you're right, maybe you're right. And and that that kind of that kind of took me out of the movie. Now maybe it was deliberate, but you know when you've had this spectacular cinematography all the way through until the second half of the movie, and then it completely changes tone. I can understand if they want to do that, but. Again, the photography wasn't great. I quite like the fact, Phil, that um, I mean, it was obviously a conscious decision on their part to uh, to detach Bond from technology in the second, the last third of the film, take it back to basics, which, which I think quite worked quite well. Except for the fact that the film basically becomes a cross between Home Alone and um, Straw Dogs towards the end. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I quite like, I, and I, I think gave you an insight into Bond's character, which I wasn't expecting. To be honest, could it be that we're all a bit um, jaded and have seen too many films? <laughs> I mean, definitely do in our cases. I haven't seen enough. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there there are a lot of stuff in there that we've seen before. Um, you know, the the omnipotent villain who who's planned to be uh, do what he did right from the right from the off. Yeah, the, the you, fiendish yeah? seven style um, plot. Yeah, you know, how can we place that bomb at that particular point but, so that the, the I, tube? I, 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 you know what I mean? I don't think you it, can change that, though, Simon. That's that. I think you buy that going in, and and you detach yourself from reality. You, you're you're prepared to buy into a Bond film, I think, because we've seen so many Bond films. We know what the formula is, and we just want to see a different twist on it, which they certainly have done. There's no taking that away from it. it but to me, I, I just felt the pacing and and the the flip around. It was almost like two different movies, and the pacing suffered the second half. There was too much of the underground MI6 stuff with this computer nerd and all the rest of it, which completely slowed the whole thing down, in my opinion, anyway. I, th- I thought it slowed it down. It, well, I started, I started I, feeling how numb my bum was at that point, which <laughs> I always judge a movie on at the end. Whether on bum numbness. Yeah, whether, <laughs> especially a movie of that length, whether I, it's, it's kept my attention all the way through. And unfortunately, as soon as you get to that section of the movie, there's too many faults. There's too well, many well, plot once lines. Again, I, I think that the, I'm coming down this side to say that this is all deliberate. Um, there's a lot of MI6 in it this time, more than any other time in, in the rest of the franchise, because the attack is t- is on MI6. Um, and I, I didn't mind all that. I didn't mind the fact they had to go to a different. Oh God, I shouldn't say too much about that. <laughs> they 
relocate. There, I said it anyway. Um, but I, I quite like trailer. that. I quite like to see, you know, a bit more of, you know, this, the environment he's meant to be employed by. Uh, and I like the training sequence, the, the getting back to, to grips with things, because as I'm sure many people know, if you've seen the trailer, yeah. Bond does take a bullet and get shot off the top of the train. And uh, Jason Bourne style has to come back. Uh, again, I'm talking around stuff here, but he's a, he's a bit slowed down. He's not quite the man he was before. Although he will obviously, you know, get the edge back, won't he? Uh, but I quite like that sequence where he, he's missing the target. He can't quite do the uh, the pull-ups, and when their backs turned, he drops, and he's 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 actually gasping. Um, I, I quite like the like it, it humanises him. It's a bit tacky. It's a bit obvious as well. But you know, I it's just once again Daniel Craig proved it. And people may argue this. He's a good actor. I think he's a great actor in what is a very formulaic role, and he's trying. Quantum Solace aside, he's trying to peel away a bit, another layer each time and deliver a bit more nuance and a bit more character and dimensionality to him. With a role like James Bond, you know, it's, it's not wanted by a lot of people. And, you know, you had a great bad guy as well. Not great in plot, but what a great character. Because he brought a bit of camp back to it, uh, which people had always seemed to want from the bad guys in the, in the Bond movie. And he's quite... <laughs> it wasn't just camp, was it? <laughs> It's quite well. I mean, there's one. It was really quite out out. There's one particular there sequence, no isn't there? I tell, you, I tell you what. If the film got lots of um, audience participation when I saw it, and I've, remarkably at the time of this recording, I've only seen the film once. I was meant to go and see it today, but believe it or not, it was bloody sold out <laughs> wow. today on every showing at my local cinema. Yeah, I saw it on Friday, and it was completely sold out the whole day. I was lucky because I was on my own. If if well, I'd been with anybody, we wouldn't wouldn't have gotten in. It was just that they had a spare seat. Well, I saw That's him in Gang Day One IMAX, brilliant, front and centre, fantastic. But my son's dying to see it, and oh, after your match today, we'll we'll I'll take you. And uh, <laughs> there's absolutely no chance. And every showing was booked up, and for the next couple of days, I don't, I've not encountered that before. Even with um, the Dark Knight Rises, it, it didn't seem to be that bad. You know, you could always get in, but. Uh, and I know because I saw it six times. A massive, uh, <laughs> a massive opening weekend. I think it was second only to Harry Potter, the last Harry Potter film in terms of uh, box office. You got to remember so, it's half town uh, as well in certain areas yeah. of England, um, which obviously, uh, you know, you'll you'll get people putting the kids into the Madagascar or whatever, and then going to see Bond at the same time. Oh, I was going to say taking the kids into, the, into this, and you've got Dame Judy dropping the f bomb. What? What was that? Oh yeah, the audience participation. Yeah, well. <laughs> There's loads of bits, you know, the homages to the original series, um, the car, loads of little, loads of little bits, and there's also a Roger Moore-ism, you know, with the Komodo dragon. Do you know oh, it's yeah. that where he's the bad guy's got him over his yeah. shoulder and he sees the dragon and he goes, well, he's, well, I'm, "I'm gesticulating madly here in my best Daniel Craig come, um, <laughs> Roger Moore fashion, but you can't see me." And that got a massive audible laugh from everybody else. Then when um, Judy Dench drops the f bomb. <gasps> The gasp that was there, the homoerotic moment as well, when he said something like, uh, what makes you think I haven't done this before? You know, and that again, you could hear the pins drop. It was just, it was great. It was great that he brought, you know, a lot of people <laughs> gave their emotions away on it um, and were genuinely surprised and also elated by the, the obvious um, Bondian homages it was paying to the rest of the series. So I think, I think it, it worked on a lot of different levels. But having said that, you know, um, and what Phil's been saying, a lot of people I know were, were quite bored by the movie, which I was st- stunned by. 
Sorry, I was going to say, sorry, it's interesting, Chris, because I, I went to see it, um, as I say, at our local flea pit. There was only about 50 of us in. It seats about 150. And the audience was just silent throughout, which in some ways was nice, but there was just absolutely no reaction to it. There's a couple of points where I was sort of, you know, sort of cringing in my seat and, you know, there's some bits where he looks down off uh, off the uh, bridge and off the train and, and you sort of get little sort of, sort of uh, twinges of vertigo and that sort of thing. But nobody else <laughs> around me seemed to be reacting, you know. It was it was as if they're just sort of like, yeah, it was either this or Madagascar, so we came to see this. Um, as I say, and the movie wasn't busy either. I arrived there early, having not booked a ticket, thinking it, it would be busy, but you know, got to sit where I wanted and avoid the popcorn thrower. Oh God! And we we were all in our tuxedos as well. We made the effort. I've got to say, I enjoyed being in a full cinema again. Uh, actually, packed out cinema, and you, you're right with the audience participation in certain points. You know, the, when there's lines dropped or, or, or so on or things happening uh, it, it was nice to have that again I, I've missed that uh, in recent visits to the cinema because I've gone early in the morning when there's not a lot of people around I do it deliberately because I can't stand standing in queues and all the rest of it I made the effort this time oh well, there's a lot podcast. to be said for like seeing a film on your own <laughs> yeah but, you know I, I quite I, when we walked in and it was almost shocking we got there way early as well and uh, I just thought, oh, here we go. I'm going to be hemmed in here. Oh, no, it's just going to do me head in. And, uh, and it didn't because of the fact that everyone seemed to be on board for it. And yet that's why I'm, I'm so surprised when I walked out. I mean, I, I was doing cartwheels and commando rolls and all sorts of things. And a couple of mates weren't doing anything. And I thought, well, did you like the film or what? Boring. I was waiting for it to end. How long was that on for? What about that stupid end? I was like, what? Did you see the same film as me? I just... So obviously I punched them all in the face. <laughs> just going back, Chris, um, I, I was with you all the way up to Bond being retrained, by the way, just in case you thought I was having a go at that point. I thought it worked up to that point. I thought the scenes that followed that, I thought that's where it changed, and I didn't think it changed for the better. And, and um, I think I think a, a second viewing um, would do the movie a lot of good. And I found that with Casino Royale as well. The first time I went in, I was dead excited and... Um, really enjoyed the whole thing, but there was a few bits that st- stood out and didn't feel right and so on. But then on repeated viewings, it, that wasn't the case. And maybe it's a it's a case of seeing it a second time, uh, maybe on disc, um, and and being able to to you know yeah. suck it all in basically. Well, and, there are definitely flaws there, and some of them are you know plotting wise, character wise, motivation wise, yeah, and and. Photography-wise, I, I didn't really pick up on, on anything like that. I recognised the change in tone. Now, whether that was visually roped in with dramatically, I don't know, but I, I definitely recognised that, but I wasn't taken out of the movie because of anything like that. And I didn't go, ooh, that, that looks atrocious. I, that didn't strike me at all. Like the way Em's obviously had training in this sort of thing as well. You know, she can make traps, she can use a gun. Uh, but I think it's a bit weird that, you know, she tends to, she seemed to forget that a torch would be seen from miles away in the darkness, but... You know, but you know, it's it's all part and parcel of movie action and mayhem. What did you think of the credit sequence? I hate you, because I I thought the credit sequence was. I'm not a big fan of the song, but I thought the credit sequence was really good. I I just I, I didn't enjoy it, and I didn't enjoy it because with 20 minutes action beforehand, I thought that that just again took me out of it. Too you know long I mean? and coming. It was no, yeah, no. basically. I mean, it's I think it's the longest ever intro to a Bond film. Ever. That was, yeah, that was, 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 was quite good, but um, you know, I like the way that various characters would, would appear, especially like Silver's character. But uh, as we just mentioned there, the song is just god awful. In a soundtrack which I think is tremendous, and I can't stop playing it, 
and Thomas Newman's score, a guy that I didn't think was going to pull this one off because it's not his sort of thing at all. But I think that David Arnold had become boring with his scores for it, uh, for Bond, and I'm quite glad to see the back of him, to be honest. Quite, quite but, interesting that Thomas Newman also did American Beauty. Yeah. Um, with Sam Mendes as well. So obviously he's gone to someone he can trust for it. And I've got to say, I enjoyed it as well. I thought it was a really, really, really good soundtrack. Great the way you brought in the original Bond theme um, yeah. on a couple of occasions. Did it really well without being too trite and too knowing with it. It just hit hit the right beat, I thought. Uh, and then, again, we've, we've talked about there's a change in tone dramatically with the movie. Um, and the score takes on that really, really well and gets a whole new sort of... Um, ambience to it and he, he, he works that out brilliantly action's tremendous to it but again you know we, we can't just gloss over Adele's contribution to it uh, there's no one who could say they were surprised that she got it I mean it was leaked way way before anyway and really speaking with Amy Winehouse not being around who else was going to do it, it had Shirley to Bassey be. what about Shirley Bassey <laughs> she well, just sounds like Burley Chassis on a bad day though doesn't she she's um, she's god awful isn't she she cannot do those notes at all uh, but I, I wasn't surprised that she got the gig. It seemed quite fitting as well. But the song is such a dirge. It's so depressing. And I think I've said before on a previous podcast when we first heard the song, never, never sing the word crumble. You know, as, as a long sustained <laughs> note. It just, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? He eats apple crumble. It's just frigging awful. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, I think the... the the score by Thomas Newman, excellent, I, I, and I think I'll get that. I've been listening to it on Spotify. I think I'll go and buy that. Um, but Adele, awful. Now, the other thing... Yeah. Well, get the CD in the shops. It hasn't got Adele's track on it. Good, there good. Go. Now, the other thing that we have to mention is obviously that this movie should have been called Sony Fall. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sony Cell, I think was the message. Sony Cells, yeah. I mean, a product placement, my God. It was Sony it, everywhere. It and was shocking. The amount of now, product placed, but the, in that the only shocking. one I, I really thought you've gone too far was was the Heineken, uh, which uh, Tanner was the bloke swigging a Heineken in MI6. He's supposed to be at work. The way the way he turned the bottle to the camera so you saw the label, you know, and <laughs> that uh, there was there was, was, there was, there was horribly so obvious. All the Sony products you saw, Sony phones, Sony tablets. There was the close-ups of the Omega watch. Uh, there's Heineken, twi- two scenes of Heineken being drunk blatantly for, for product placement. The cars. It was just unbelievable. I mean, there was 20 minutes of adverts before the film started. Uh, <laughs> I, know, I, I loved all that. that they, with I Bond in half the adverts. It just it was just like unbelievable mass, you know, just I, I, I saturated selling. I, I, mean, I, I, I always don't done mind it. it. <laughs> They've always done it in Bond films. There's always been product placement in Bond films. Ian Fleming wrote it in the books as well. Okay, not with Sony. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but he, he did a lot, a hell of a lot of uh, product placements in his stuff, mainly because he wanted to stay in certain hotels, so he'd name drop hotels, he'd name drop cigarette brands, he'd name drop this car, that car, whatever. And so, But it's, to me, that's always, that's always been part of Bond. I don't mind that so much. The Heineken bottle turning was a was a bit really in your face, and I did that did kind of think, oh no, you've been a bit daft with that one. But the rest of it, you know, it definitely stood out a lot more than than I've noticed in other Bond movies. I think the only other time it really stood out was uh, in Casino Royale when he when he's going into the CCTV system. Yeah, the and, and it, was, it was blue, it was Blu-ray <laughs> recorders, and they weren't even on the market at that point. Which, yeah, never mind. Uh, so to wrap this up, we have to talk about the Bond girls. Yes, indeed. Um, Bernice Marlowe as Severine, all in that backless number. Smoking hot. <laughs> Absolutely jaw-dropping. And 
um, I think one of the best shots, we, we, and you see it from a distance through the, the hole in the glass, and even from a distance, and that was like the first proper scene you saw, and I thought, oh my God, I, I, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and yeah, yeah. she's, I, she's I an absolute dreamboat horribly underused as well but then again it's a Bond girl there and of course Naomi Harris as uh, Agent Eve uh, who again a bit of a stunner a bit more to do in the film doesn't she and, she and she sort of holds her own against Bond in terms of the uh, sort of the quips and uh, comments yeah and, makes, and, makes and we her, uh, and, and, get more quips in this movie yeah and, and he enjoys that you can see the the enjoyment on his face that he's actually found someone who he can say he say something to, and she's going to come right back at him. And and you can see the enjoyment in in the exchanges there that he's really enjoying the fact that he's trying to wind her up, and she's coming right back at him. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely a bit of a spark there because I mean he's he's got to have some respect for her because she did put him down with a bullet at one stage and very early on. So you know, there's a bit of. Mutual trust and mistrust as well between the two of them, but they're on equal footing in many other ways. Yeah, it's a, it's a good little relationship there. I think there's a good character build for her in the uh, in the in the pre-credit uh, action sequence as well. Actually, I think that kind of sets her up well for the rest of the film. Even if she does sound a little apologetic when he when he makes it back to MI6 later on, but yeah, I really enjoyed her role. What is interesting though is that when you get to the end of Skyfall. And this goes back to my point that I made on the previous podcast we did about Bond films, uh, the special, was that the whole concept of rebooting with the Daniel Craig movies, which kind of means you ignore 50 years of Bond history, is really annoying. But you've got to the point now, at the end of Skyfall, where the next film could literally just be straight after Die Another Day, because everything will be in place. But you can pick up a bu- and any Bond film at any time and just watch it. Well, no, 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 you could, you could in the past, because every Bond film w- w- was just a, a film in its own right, which just followed on from the previous ones, but very little in the way of plot, sto- you know, story arc or anything like that. Whereas this is basically saying that the Casino Royale is is a n- new Bond. It's got nothing to do with any of the other Bonds, which is, means, oh, well, sod the other Bonds, and that doesn't mean anything anymore. Forget 50 years of history, we're rebooting it because we're Sony, we just bought the Raff franchise, and now we're going to flog you loads of stuff. Well, <laughs> which is basically where we ended up with Casino Royale to a certain extent. I don't know how much I got suckered in by the um, something that was said I on, hate on the, the rooms or whatever. That you meant to, or it's possible with this movie to think that between Quantum and this, a lot of the adventures you've seen Bond go on before could well have happened because he's more, he's much more seasoned. Quantum doesn't get mentioned, as you know, as a lot of people know anyway. This is not to do with Quantum whatsoever, but uh, and nor does Vespa get mentioned. So that seems to be quite some time in the past potentially yeah. so a few more missions like what we've seen before obviously not all of them but you know because the guy would be 150 by that, by that stage um but could have happened and i i kind of bought into that i kind of thought yeah this has moved down the line a bit so he's there's been a few more missions now and i thought there's no quantum in this but i think we've all heard the rumors that quantum could perhaps be in the next installment which is rumored to be a, a two-parter isn't it um, so that that could be interesting to wrap that up because I think you need to bring Quantum back in. I like I like that organisation because it was it was sinister, it was weird, and it was definitely an evolution from Smash and then Spectre. So you can't really bring them in, can you? You know, the, the world has moved on. I, I think I think you're right with with that whole history thing because otherwise the DB5 just wouldn't work, uh, and the fact that they bring the DB5 back into yeah. this movie and it has all the gadgets and everything on it, um, and that they actually talk about the gadgets. So I think you have to buy into the fact that this is further down the line. Definitely. Yeah. And they, they make references to Bond's age as well, and the fact he's getting on a bit. 
in the film. So, so I mean, it definitely seems to me as if that was a conscious effort in in Skyfall to make reference to the previous Bond movies to tie it back into the Bond franchise in the way that they weren't doing in the two films before that. To my annoyance. Well, um, people I spoke to said that they didn't like that element. You know, they make an issue out of Bond's age and that, you know, Q's like a, a young whippersnapper now. You know, he's still got spots, as Bond says. Um, and could you have said that to me? You know, that, stop playing on his age. He's not that old, for God's sake. But the thing is, in that, in that society, that way of life, that profession, he actually would be pretty old compared to some of the up-and-coming people yeah. who are using different technology. He's a field agent. He goes out there and he... Well, this Bond, well, any other Bond, is more a straight-ahead bludgeon, isn't he? He'll just run through a wall. He'll sledgehammer anyone who get, gets in his way. There's a lot less, um, you know, suaveness to him. There's a lot less decorum. He, he is a bit of a, you know, a rhino when it comes to that. And that's probably why this incarnation of Bond really does appeal to me, perhaps more than many of the other ones. But, you just uh, like him because he's buffed up, Chris. That's why you like well, it. And I, I, I find that's like, like Bardem's character now. <laughs> No, you do. And I find it distracting. He's too bulky and big for a spy. Spies should be, you know, slim and, and svelte and, and sneaky. Just because you want Fassbender in it. Uh... Fassbender would absolutely kill that role. Fassbender would be the best Bond ever. And with no cheekbones. I don't mind the fact that he's. Uh, they make an issue of him being older and just keep up with current technology. Uh, I, I don't mind all that side of things at all. Because uh, he is getting on a bit as far as this sort of profession is concerned, I think. And he's lucky to have lived as long as he has done. And I think they'll make more of an issue out of that next time round as well. Because you certainly saw wounds and injuries on his body this time, didn't you? They were yeah. definitely exposed. I know he, obviously he gets shot, but you could see he looked a bit more battered and bruised this time round. And he was a little bit slower, um, I think. But, you know. Yo, going but, back to your point, Chris, I remember what I was going to say now, which is uh, the, the rumours about them writing two scripts... I'm not sure whether they mean they're going to be uh, two parts of one story or whether they're going to shoot two films back to back because the reality is Daniel Craig is getting on a bit. He's like 47 now. Uh, and these are really physical films. I mean, you know, Roger Moore wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds on one of these movies. He did more running in the first 10 minutes of this film than Roger Moore did in seven Bond movies. I, I, <laughs> I seem think I've heard that before from you. Yeah, I think it gagged before, <laughs> didn't I? But what I mean is, you know, I, I think if you're being realistic here, if you want to do, and I know he's signed up for two more films, if you want to do two more films with um, with Daniel Craig, and there's a three-year gap between them, or even a two-year gap, he's going to be in his early 50s. And I don't think physically he's up for that. So better to shoot I, I don't. I don't know. You see, this, I, is, I, why, I this is why the second part of the movie didn't work for me, because in the first part of the movie, he was Bond. Uh, he walks into situations without really thinking about the consequences of what he's going to do. He knows he's going to get into fisticuffs. He knows he's going to... His life's on the line, blah, blah, blah. And then the second half of the movie didn't really work because he, he, he was right against uh, cast type then. He was going into hiding. That didn't really work for me. He wasn't actually going to hiding, though. Well, no, he wasn't. He was he was laying a trap. But again, you know, that's the first time we've ever seen Bond act like that, isn't it? Laying a trap for someone. He always that's, that's... he always just marches in and and starts <laughs> either starts but shooting again, or, or again, starts That's why I liked it because it wasn't you know it wasn't like every other Bond film. It was trying and to be a little I, bit different. I have to agree with Steve on that one. Um, and, and, and I have yeah, to disagree. I don't think there was there was a way of storming into. Oh God, we can't go too far with this, can we? I don't think he had much of another much of an option the other way round because you know the enemy hasn't got a stronghold that can be infiltrated as such, so he has to lure them out I, 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 it is different granted and I, 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 
like Steve, I, I enjoyed that because it was uh, something you hadn't seen before. And I loved the whole siege mentality. Now, one last thing. Where was he getting all the guys from? Because every scene he went into <laughs> yeah, yeah, with no henchmen, henchmen they? <laughs> they all got shot in every scene and he was the only one left standing. And then the next scene, he's got another whole branch of henchmen. Where was he getting them from? Henchmen are us. Sony? You've got them from Sony. There's nearly two and a half million unemployed now. I mean, you know, jobs centre. Well, sad soldier they've laid off in the last five years. Well, sadly, we're going to have to leave it there because we have run out of time. Um, So, Star Wars. Uh, new movie coming out, 2015. Disney have taken over Lucasfilm. That is big news. And of course, Skyfall. If you haven't seen it yet, go and see it. Give us your opinions. Put your opinions in the Skyfall Cinema Review, which is in the Blu-ray and Movie Reviews forum. Uh, lots of opinions in there so far. Uh, go and see the movie if you haven't seen it yet. Get your opinions in there. We'll go have a read and maybe discuss them in a future podcast. Go and see Bond before Disney buys that as well. <laughs> <laughs> And don't forget, we publish podcasts every week of uh, the month. So on the 7th is the Movies Podcast, which you're listening to. The 14th, the Games Podcast. 21st is a home cinema podcast. And on the 28th, we have the Podcast Extra. So all I need to do now is thank the guys. So thanks to Chris, Simon, Matt and Steve. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Phil. Thanks. Thank you very much. Cheers, guys. And this is Phil Hinn saying thanks for listening. We'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.